fun to share all of your experiences and where you've been and everything like that. Um, if you're new to this class, this is a, if there are more in-depth Bible studies looking at kind of one passage of scripture, this would be the opposite of that. It's more of a, a meta look at specifically the Old Testament, but many weeks I have the New Testament banner down here as well that connects specifically the theological elements of the Old Testament, how we're waiting for the Messiah, how the Old Testament is a preparation for the Messiah um, in, in many, many different ways. But we're looking at this theological timeline. It's also a historical timeline. So if, the, if this is new for you, you can see uh, this large acrostic casket, which is at the very top. And if it's not new for you, I'd like you to direct your attention my way so you're not looking at the banner. Let's review our periods of Old Testament hi history. C stands for? A stands for? Abraham. S stands for? Sinai. K stands for? Kings. E stands for? Exile. T stands for? Temple. Very good. Now let's just go through the symbols, which tells us a little bit of the theology. What is the symbol for creation? Two trees. And what are the two trees? Great. Tree of life, tree of knowledge of good and evil. Very good. And then we get to A, what's the symbol for Abraham? Gift. What does the gift remind us of? Grace. Salvation. The gift of Jesus Christ. It's not something that we earn, but it was credited to Abraham through his belief. Righteousness was given by belief. And so we just believe and receive the gift of grace in Jesus Christ. We've got creation, Abraham. What's the symbol for Sinai? Great. Two tablets, which represents what? The law of Moses. And then we get to K, kings. Crown. And what color is the crown? What does the blue crown symbolize? Great, the line of Christ. We're going to look today specifically at the northern empire of the period of the kings where you'll find none of the kings come from the legitimate messianic line, the line of Judah. And the illegitimate line is represented by what color crown? Red. Very good. Creation, Abraham, Sinai, kings. What's the symbol for exile? A vulture, a buzzard, a bird of prey. What does that symbolize? The curses, the curses that come from disobedience to what? God's law, the law of Sinai. So that one's really related to the two tablets in Sinai. If you obey, I'll bless you, the Lord says. If you disobey, I'll curse you. And one of the things that comes back is the birds of the air will pick at your bones, will pick at your flesh. We'll actually see that a few times in the city of Jezreel in the northern kingdom that actually happens to several of the northern kings. They've been cursed because of their disobedience to the law of Sinai. And specifically, the first two commandments are broken all the time. What's our very first commandment? There is only one God. Have no other gods before me. And what's the second commandment? Do not bow down to idols. So we're going to find that idolatry is a serious, serious issue for God's people but it's specifically illustrated with uh, a couple of golden calves that are going to be set up in 930 BC and that lasts for 200 years until Samaria is destroyed. Good. And then very lastly, what's the symbol for our last period? A temple. And what's significant about the temple not having a cloud over it? Great. God's presence does not fill the second temple the way that it does the first temple built by King Solomon or the tabernacle, which was filling the purpose of the temple, but the tabernacle was just a tent. And all of this is pointing to casket empty, the idea that God tells his redemptive story through events of history, but they're centered on Jesus Christ. In his empty casket, we find life through belief in his name. And by the way, that's not just eternal life. The reason that we listen to God's word on a Sunday morning is to learn how to live into the abundant life that Jesus gives us. He tells us, I have come to bring you life and life more abundantly, life to the max, life to the fullest. And that's something that God promises us here and now through belief. And the, uh, 
the acronym or the acrostic for empty. You can learn when you stick with me when I teach the New Testament class, whenever that is. But John won't be patient for it, so who knows? <laughs> whenever that is. Um, okay, we've done our review. And friends, let's thank the Lord for his presence with us. Will you pray with me? Father, I ask that as a teacher, you would help me be malleable in your hand to pause, to help others reflect, for my own spirit to reflect on your words of scripture, and that you would really be our teacher in this time. We thank you in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, something logistically, if you have been able to go to the website and find that we have some podcasts that are available as a congregation, when you go to the website, you go to the worship tab and under worship it says podcasts and all of my lectures so far have been recorded for the podcast so if you want to be famous just speak into the mic and um, I've also put the audio for last week's video so last week I wasn't here I was in Lake Arrowhead but I put the entire lecture for the United Monarchy on on the video. And I think it was a small crowd last week, so I tried to email it out to as many of you whose email addresses I have, but if you did not receive it, I, my brain was scattered. Come to me, give me your email address, and I'll send you the video. It's about an hour long, and it takes you through our kings of the United Monarchy. Those of you that have seen the video, help me. Who were our three kings of the United Monarchy of Israel? First was Saul. Second was David. David. And third was, is there a relationship between David and Solomon? Father and son. Fantastic. Which one of them builds the temple? Very good. And um, the Lord makes a eternal covenant with one of those kings saying that um, your son will come from your line and he will reign on the throne forever. Which king does God make a covenant with? David. David, great. And that's why David comes from the line of Judah, which is one of the 12 tribes of Israel in, at the last few chapters of Genesis. And that means that the Messiah to come, who will reign forever and the, and the scepter will not depart from his hand, is going to come from the line of Judah. Now we get to 930 BC. Remember that each one of these kings reigns for 40 years. Saul, David and Solomon. It's just nice and round numbers. And then we get to 930 and the kingdom splits. What do we learn about Solomon's behavior that causes the kingdom to split? Does somebody remember? Just generally. Taxes. <laughs> it needs to be said first. Good. Um, we're going to learn a little bit about how Solomon treated, namely, slave labor that Solomon used um, the, the foreigners who were kind of living in his midst used and why, the, why it splits. What else, theologically? He's got like 700 wives, 300 concubines, or the other way around or something. Okay, so he's got polygamy. Maybe even more central than that, Gary. Uh, uh, prostitute, I think. Like, thanks. That's great. Thank you. Idolatry. Yeah, idolatry is the issue. What was the reason God gave for not intermarrying with foreign women? You'll worship their gods. You'll worship their gods. So the issue is not actually the wives or the concubines although having a thousand would be an issue to visit all of them. Um, yeah, remember, remembering anniversaries would be a serious issue. But uh, it's, it's idolatry. And sure enough, Solomon starts worshiping other gods. So um, in, everybody do this, 1 Kings chapter 11, the kingdom splits. Okay? 1 Kings chapter 11, that's where the kingdom is going to go. It's going to split, maybe more specifically like this. Quick overview of the period. Because of Solomon's idolatry, Ahijah, the prophet, declares that the kingdom is going to be taken out of not Solomon's hand, but Solomon's son's hand. Which one is going to be his son? Solomon. 
follow the blue line, Rehoboam. Takes it out of his son's hand. Um, this doesn't happen during Solomon's reign because of the covenant God made with Solomon's dad. Because of his covenant with David, the kingdom will not be split until Solomon dies. So 10 of the kingdoms are going to go to the north. And sometimes the Bible says one, and it just groups Benjamin in with Judah. Judah is so huge that they just kind of call it one. But technically, two tribes go to the south. If you're reading through First and Second Samuel, what you'll find is that there was already a rift even during Saul's monarchy. There was a cultural rift between the tribes of the north and the tribes of the south. And the tribes of the south felt like they were more important because they had the temple in Jerusalem. And the tribes of the north felt like they were more important because they were bigger. Ten tribes up there. They just felt like they were more important. So maybe it's a difference between the electoral college and the popular vote. I don't know. Let's not go there, though. <laughs> so anyway, it's going to be split, and the northern kingdom is going to be called Israel, and the southern kingdom is going to be called Judah. Now, what can be confusing about this is sometimes when you read, especially First and Second Kings, sometimes it'll say Israel, and it's talking about both. Sometimes it'll say Israel, and it's talking about the north. And sometimes it'll say Israel, and it's referring to the south. So context is always king or queen. Just read for the context. Sure enough, because of Rehoboam's own folly, though, the Lord uses... Um, wait, I'm sorry. Okay, ten tribes go to the north. Yes. And the north goes with Solomon's military servant, his military leader, Jeroboam. And Jeroboam has been overseeing much of the work of the temple building. And he hears the complaints of all of these slave laborers. And they're like, Solomon's too hard on us. They should go easy. And he's also in charge of the warring forces. So Jeroboam is actually a more present leader with the people than Rehoboam or Solomon is. So when it's Rehoboam's chance to lead, he gets bad advice and 10 tribes don't want to go with them. Instead, they're going to go with their general. They're going to go with Jeroboam, and they actually split off. But Jeroboam is going to be concerned with people traveling from the north to the south three times a year to the temple. So rather than people traveling to the south to Jerusalem, he says, I'll set up my own temples. And he sets up one in the, in the southern part of the northern kingdom and one in the northern part, one in the city of Bethel, one in the city of Dan, and he, he sets up a golden calf. This is the appropriate time to slap your forehead. A golden calf in each one of them, and he says, behold your God who brought you out of Egypt. And then he says, this is who you're worshiping from now on. Not only does he do that, he sets up his own priesthood. Remember from the law of Sinai, which tribe would be the tribe of the priests? Levites. You didn't need to be a Levite to be a priest. All you need to do was volunteer, and you could be a priest. And you're not going down there for festivals. Instead, he set up his own feast dates. So it's this total displacement of the law of God from Sinai. So it's an egregious breach of the covenant at Sinai. And these, imagine that a line is drawn from these golden calves all the way to here. So there are some kings, like Jehu, that knock down idols to Baal and some other Canaanite gods and whatnot. But those golden calves remain in Israel for 200 years. And they're only, they're only obliterated when the northern kingdom is going to be sacked by Assyria. Uh, the worst king in the northern empire is, everybody say, Ahab. Yeah. Ahab. So you can think Moby Dick. He's going to be the worst king, and a ton of chapters in 1 Kings are dedicated to Ahab, like seven chapters, because Ahab's so bad. So the song Ahab the Arab? Sure. You, you're singing that for us at some point, Jay. You're going to sing that for us. During the period of the kings, God sends many prophets. The two most important prophets of the northern kingdom don't write books. So we don't have them in our prophetic books, but they are Elijah and Elisha. 
By the way, everything in this lesson today is alphabetical. Northern Kingdom is Israel. Israel comes before J in the, in the alphabet. Um, they're going to be sacked by the Assyrians. They're going to be sacked by the Babylonians, A, B. Elijah comes before Elisha in the alphabet. If you need help with your alphabet, you can turn to your neighbor at some point. But the capital city is going to be set up by this guy. His name's Omri. He builds Samaria. What's going to be the capital of the south? Jerusalem. What's the capital of the north? Samaria. Uh, there are, unbelievably, even though the northern kingdom is sacked in 722 B.C. and the southern kingdom eventually is sacked in 586 B.C., there are 19 kings in the north. There are 19 kings in the south. The reigns are longer in the south, but there's one queen, Athaliah. Athaliah is a, a queen, so, and she's not from the line of Judah, so she doesn't really count. We'll get to that. <laughs> get to it. Um, but the main kings, if you're really taking big notes, the main kings that we really focus on are Jeroboam the first, Ahab, Jehu, Jeroboam the second, Pekah, and Hosea. Those are the ones that kind of really focus on. Are you ready for this? Jeroboam, Nadabasha, Elazimri, Omri, Ahab, Ahaziah, Jehoram, Jehu, Jehoaz, Joash, Jeroboam, Zechariah, Shalom, Menaim, Pekahiah, Pika, Hosea. Thank you. You guys humor me so much. You humor me. Uh, yes, along with Ahab the Arab. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> neither. Neither. I just, I, that's how I internalize things. I got to put them to a melody. All right, here's the books of the Bible that are going to be concerned with the northern kingdom. First and second Samuel have to do with the united monarchy. First Samuel is Saul. 2 Samuel begins with David's reign, okay? And then 1 Kings starts with so uh, Solomon. The kingdom splits when in 1 Kings? What chapter? Yeah. Chapter 11. And then the rest of 1 Kings is going to be dedicated to the split kingdom. If you want to learn more about the northern kingdom, read 1 and 2 Kings. 2 Chronicles, follow me on this. 1 Chronicles includes all of the material in 1st and 2nd Samuel. 1st Chronicles includes all of the content in 1st and 2nd Samuel. Well, why is it told twice? 1st and 2nd Samuel was written during the United Monarchy. Chronicles was written during the exile. They're reflecting, they're, they're theologically interpreting events from two and 300 years before. What did we do wrong? Okay? And Chronicles is really going to, because again, who went into exile in Babylon? The north or the south? The south. They went into exile in Babylon. So they're really interpreting events about the southern kingdom. So if you really want to learn a lot about the southern kingdom, you're going to be reading first and second Chronicles. Okay? But the northern kingdom is, is really exposed in first and second Kings. If you want to read about Elijah, if you want to read about Elisha, Elijah is in 1 Kings. Elisha, that's basically the division. The mantle passes to Elisha in 2 Kings. Then, of all of the prophets, the ones that wrote books, only three of them are northern prophets. Hosea, Amos, and Jonah. And to remember the three northern prophets, we're going to remember them with the three eyes. Ready for this? So Hosea is a book about infidelity. He relates the analogy of marriage to fidelity with God. He's not the only prophet to do that, but he's a prophet who actually marries a prostitute and is faithful in his covenant. He pursues her. Sound familiar? The Lord is faithful in his covenant with Israel. He pursues them. So Hosea is about infidelity on the part of God's people. Hosea, what's the eye? infidelity. For Amos, the eye is injustice. What you'll see is that the symbol for Amos, Hosea's wedding rings, for Amos, it's a scale, an unjust balance. You have not treated the poor with equity. 
You've been concerned about your own ownership and privileges. It's injustice. You're taking bribes in your courts. So God cries out to his people through Amos, not only are you unfaithful, Hosea, but you're unjust. So injustice, infidelity, injustice. And then lastly, Jonah is not really about a fish. It's about Jonah is in need of compassion. God takes compassion on the nations around Israel. Which nation? The nation that's about to conquer Samaria. He takes pity on Assyria. And the Lord sends a prophet, Jonah, to go witness to the capital of Assyria, Nineveh. And he's like, heck no, I'm not witnessing to those people. They don't deserve mercy. And, and just a few years later, Assyria is going to conquer Samaria. But God has compassion. Remember, God blesses Abraham. But he says, you will be blessed so that you are a blessing to whom? To all nations. So we see that he has compassion. What's the I for Hosea? Infidelity. What's the I for Amos? What's the I for Jonah? In need of compassion. That's great. Okay, turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 11. We're going to move through quickly. As you're turning there, if you have a timeline, and we're, we're fresh out of timelines, so if you'd like um, a small timeline, I'll tell you the website you can buy them from. They're $10. The northern part of the timeline has something, some icons, that the south does not have. They look like this. Daggers and families. If you see a family, like here, between Jeroboam and Nadab, if you see a family, that means Nadab has a familial relationship with Jeroboam, either a son or a brother, okay? If you see a dagger, that means that the next person, so like one dagger, Shalom, it means that he killed the king before him, Zechariah, okay? <laughs> if you see multiple daggers, that means not only did he kill the king before him, he killed his entire family. So there is no more dynasty. So check out Omri. Omri for one, two, three generations. So four generations, the Omri dynasty is, is going on. But Jehu has been sent by God to destroy the dynasty of Omri. Don't let them rule anymore. So Jehu not only kills Je Jehoram, he kills all of his sons. It's a nasty business being a successor, I suppose. Okay, so that's something that you see. But at the bottom of your Judah timeline, you can see one family in the bottom left corner, and that family continues the entire time because they're all from, again, with the exception of Athaliah, they're all from the uh, tribe of Judah. Uh, red crown represents those who are not from the tribe of Judah. That would be everybody in the northern kingdom. Okay. Jeroboam. Jeroboam reigns for 20 years. He was a valiant warrior and he was an energetic servant of King Solomon and he was put in charge of Solomon's entire labor force. Jeroboam is met by the prophet Ahijah. Here's Ahijah. And Ahijah meets Jeroboam and before Jeroboam becomes king, Ahijah takes his own garment, takes it off and he shreds it into 12 pieces. And then he gives him, he gives uh, Jeroboam, 10 of them. I don't know why the prophet can't just tell him yeah. <laughs> you're going to get 10 tribes of Israel to rule, but instead he gives them his, most of his shirt. But that's a prophetic way of saying that Jehoram surely, a few years later, becomes the king of, of Israel. And God makes a promise to Jeroboam. Look at 1 Kings chapter 11. And can somebody read loud and proud, verses 37 through 39? Gwen, go for it. 37 through 39.
Thank you. Um, okay, so it sounds like God is making a covenant with Jeroboam. We've learned about unilateral covenants and bilateral covenants. Which one would this be? Bilateral, because there's a two-letter word. Thanks, Tommy. There's a two-letter word that cues that. What is it? If. If you. If you do this. So is Jeroboam going to walk in the ways of God? No. He sets up those idols. Builds altars in Dan, which is a... Dan is confusing. Dan is actually a tribal area that's to the south, but it's also a city to the north. <laughs> okay, so Dan is way up at the top, and then Bethel is a city to the south. So you've got, hey, whatever's more convenient, we've got our franchised idol temples you can go to. Okay, um, and here's a map. Oh, great. So there's Dan, there's Bethel, and you can see that Judah... Is, is quite a bit smaller. And toward the, I mean, once we get into the last few days of the kingdom of Judah, Judah doesn't even really exist anymore. It becomes a city-state. Everything is happening in Jerusalem. And what you find is that Assyria, even though it doesn't sack Jerusalem, it sacks every other town around Jerusalem. And so you've got Hezekiah, the king of the south, shut up like a bird in his city of Jerusalem. And God, God preserves him. It's pretty amazing. Um, so he's going to set up non-Levitical priests. He makes two idols and says, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt and they exist for 200 years. And I told you about how Ahijah loses his shirt to warn him. Okay, our second king, Nadab. So Judging by the picture, what relationship does Nadab have with Jer- Jeroboam? Yeah, his son or his family. In this case, his son. He does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Everybody say, number three. Number three is Basha. He reigns for 20 years. He kills Jeroboam's, what? Entire family, his dynasty, due to God's judgment upon Jeroboam for those idols. First Kings 15. And you can just kind of flip through with, with us here. Basha did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked, this is going to be a key phrase, walked in the ways of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. Everybody say number four. four. Elah, what relationship does he have with Basha? Son, but he's murdered shortly into his reign by, everybody say number five. Zimri, the joke's on Zimri though because he only reigns for a week. Everybody say number six. I watched too much David Letterman, I think, early in my <laughs> number six. I just want to throw a card when I say that. Um, here's the thing about Zimri, though. Again, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the ways of Jeroboam and for his sin, which he committed, making Israel to sin. So then we get Omri. And Omri builds the capital of the northern kingdom. What's the capital called? Samaria. Um, yes, this is going to be related to... John 4, Samaritan woman at the well. We're going to get to that at the very end. They don't know where to worship. They've been confused in their theology. Omri reigns for 11 years and 1 Kings 16 says, does more evil than all who were before him. Note, the next three kings, Ahab, Ahaziah, and Jehoram are all from Omri's family. This is called the Omri dynasty. And it's going to come to an end with Jehu. Also, by this point, less than 60 years have passed since the division of the kingdom. And every northern king has followed in the sins of Jeroboam. The Lord continues to be provoked because of Israel's idolatry. God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. But because he is gracious, compassionate, and slow to anger, his judgment against the north is going to hold on for about 150 more years. Everybody say number seven. Okay, Ahab is the most important king of the north. He reigns for 20 years. Seven chapters in 1 Kings are dedicated to him. He's Israel's worst king. Israel's sin increased dramatically under his leadership. He makes it seem as though it had been, 1 Kings chapter 16, a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. It's, It's easy. He marries a woman named Jezebel, who's a Sidonite. So she's a foreign woman. 
and he is introduced by her to Baal worship, including an altar and temple for Baal in Samaria. He promotes the worship of the goddess Asherah by making Asherah poles or figurines, idolatry. Um, by the way, the passage that I preached on today, we didn't say much about it, but Paul says, you turned away from idols to worship the living God. And remember in the sermon, I talked about sexual ethics in Greece meant you had to turn away from the temple. Idolatry and adultery were like this. Well, you can see in some of these idols, the, the sexual imagery that's actually you know, evoked by them. So you've got idolatry and sexual perversion. He's the worst Northern king. First Kings 16 says, he did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before them. This is when Elijah comes on the scene because Elijah is going to be the one who jousts with Ahab and the prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel. There's been a drought, a curse of the Mosaic covenant for disobedience. You could read about it in, again, Leviticus chapter 26, Deuteronomy 27 and 28 show the curses of the covenant. I think that's up there somewhere. Yeah, right here. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 27 and 28. If you ever want to read about, what are these curses? What are these blessings? <laughs> Have fun with that. God sends Elijah to Ahab to gather all of Israel at Mount Carmel, including 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. Elijah says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? How long will you go limping between two different opinions? When I read this, I think about the Lord's compassion on those who don't believe. Isn't it a lifestyle that hurts you? You're limping between them. You think of how Paul describes his conversion when Jesus says to him, Paul, it must hurt to kick against the goads. A goad is a thorn that would be put behind a goat's foot so that it wouldn't kick you while you were, while you were milking it. It must hurt to live against the ways of God. Elijah says, how long will you go limping between these opinions? Well, the prophets of Baal cut up an ox and began to call on Baal to send fire, a lightning bolt. And this should be easy for Baal. Baal is the god of the storm. So actually, this whole illustration is playing to the strengths of Baal. All you got to do is send a lightning bolt, Baal. And by the way, in the midst of drought, should be pretty easy to catch something on fire. It's like Otai Mesa out there. They call out all morning and evening. They leap around the altar louder and louder. It's interesting. They say they limp around the altar, limping language again. They cut themselves to get a response from Baal. Elijah mocks them. The psalmist says, idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they do not. They have ears, but they do not hear. Psalm 115. Baal can't hear. No matter how loudly the prophets call, Baal has a mouth, but he can't speak. Human beings like to worship a god without speech. We love Baal-like gods, so actually we can tell the god what they're supposed to do in our lives rather than the other way around. Do we see our culture dictating their deities? I'd like to believe in a god who dot dot dot. Have you heard that before? I can't believe in God because he dot, dot, dot. If God is really God, shouldn't he be God on his own terms? Elijah makes uh, his own sacrifice of an ox and even pours water all over it. Now think about this. It's going to be 12 huge jars of water. They've been in a drought for years. Think about what people are thinking as he's pouring water around. Again, a second time, a third time, he saturates this whole thing. And then he calls down fire after he asks the Lord, would you show these people that you're turning their hearts back? What's that word biblically for turning? Repent, repent. And so in the, in the Hebrew, everybody say shuv. Shuv, that's the turning away. And the Greek word metanoia. Metanoia, a change of mind, a, a, a repentance. Turn their hearts back to you. 
Fire falls, consumes the sacrifice, licks up the water in the trench, and all the people fall on their faces, proclaiming, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Many years later, God will call another prophet, like Elijah, who's actually dressed the same way Elijah is, in camel's hair, with a belt of leather, and he's going to say, repent, turn back to God. He prays to the Lord. Show this people that you're turning their hearts back to him. John the Baptist. Okay, back to Ahab. Judgment comes upon Ahab for all of his sin, and he dies in battle. You're going to want to remember Ahab's name. There he is. The worst king of the north, Ahab. Everybody say number eight. Ahaziah becomes ill during his reign, but instead of crying out to God for help, he goes to Baalzebub, who's the god of Akron, Ekron. As judgment for his idolatry, Ahaziah will never recover from his sickness. Um, just as we learned, especially in the period of, of David, the battle belongs to who? The, the battle belongs to the Lord. That's kind of our lesson for the United Monarchy. For the North, God helps the kings who cry out to him, even the bad ones. When they're in battle and they cry out to the Lord, God helps them. You see that over and over again. Well, Ahaziah refuses to. Everybody say number nine. Jehoram, brother of Ahaziah, because Ahaziah has no sons, he reigns for 11 years. He's often called Joram. Don't confuse him with the southern king who's reigning at this time called Jehoram, also called Joram. Everybody say, oh, Elisha. All right, great. So Elisha, as you're following along in your Bibles, Elisha is going to be kind of right at the beginning of 2 Kings when he's deputized. Elijah and Elisha are 9th century prophets. They're very, very early, and they perform many signs and healings. Get this. Elisha multiplies a widow's oil. He restores uh, a dead son to life, and he multiplies bread and grain and, and feeds 100 people. He heals a man named Naaman from leprosy. Uh, is Naaman from Israel or Judah? Syria. Great. Okay, so an enemy of, of Israel. Um, we're seeing with these early prophets what their role is. A prophet is one who has been called by God to stand in his counsel and speak his word. They therefore interpret their own historical circumstances from God's perspective. Friends, it's exactly what we've been called to do. Exactly what we've been called to do. Um, the gifts of prophecy can be grouped in some different ways, but in general ways, all of us interpret the word of God according to the circumstances where we live. And we're actually called, like Elisha and Elijah, to stand before authority. Here's the good news. Jesus tells his disciples, you're going to be dragged before judges and courts. Do not fear. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak. Yes, okay, great. Uh, everybody say number 10. Jehu is going to bring an end to the dynasty of Omri. Everybody goes to, everybody go to 2 Kings 9. 2 Kings 9. This is impossible. 2 Kings 9. Can I get a reader for verses 7 through 10, please? Andrew. Thank you very much, Andrew. Yeah, I would do the same thing. Um, <clears throat> take a look. The wife of Ahab is Jezebel, and it says the territory or city of Jezreel. Jezreel is going to be kind of the bloody city that's associated with God's wrath. The dogs are going to lick up the blood of Jezebel as she falls out of a window in Jezreel. Um, and by the way, Jezebel is going to reappear in the New Testament in the book of Revelation, which is really talking about the sins of idolatry that God's people are, well, that the world is guilty of. 
So Jehu kills 70, all 70 of Ahab's sons. He eradicates Baal worship, and he pays tribute to Shalmaneser III, which is the Assyrian uh, king at the time. Okay, real quick. Who are the two... Who are the two ninth century prophets in order? Do I have a... Oh, sheesh. Okay, good. Uh, what sort of idolatrous, idolatrous practices have we witnessed so far in Israel? What have we seen? Jeroboam, and what does he do? Golden calves, great. What other idols do we see? The Asherah. Who introduces Asherah and Baal? Ahab and his wife. Uh, who are the two? Yep, good. All right. Everybody say number 11. Jehoahaz reigns for 15 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord following the sins of Jeroboam. Everybody say number 12. Uh, Jehoash, son of Ahab. Okay, also called Joash. Uh, that's fine. Okay, number, everybody say number 13. Jeroboam. This is Jeroboam the second. He's the son of Jehoash. He reigns for 40 years. And despite his really lengthy reign, we don't know very much about him. But during his reign, that's when we come across three of the northern prophets. Who are the northern prophets again? Hosea, Amos, and Jonah. Way to go. What's the eye that goes with Hosea? Infidelity. What's the eye that goes with Amos? Injustice. What's the eye that goes with Jonah? In need of compassion. I'm going to kind of hustle through these. Um, but you can read more about Hosea on the back of the timeline. God describes Israel's idolatry in terms of marriage. Israel has shown infidelity as a harlot or a whore is unfaithful. The covenant at Sinai has been likened in scripture to a marriage. Jeremiah says, Israel has broken my covenant though I was like a husband to them. Breaking the covenant and serving other gods then is liking to have other lovers. Hosea is called to marry a prophet. Uh, so, sorry, different. A prostitute, Gomer. And this will symbolize God's covenant with an unfaithful Israel. Hosea and Gomer have three children and their names communicate uh, the, the worst of judgment on Israel. One is called Jezreel the famous bloody city. They named their son Jezreel. The next one is called No Mercy. I'd go with Michael or Stephen if I were you. Um, the third is called Not My People, which speaks of the violation of the covenant at Sinai. Remember, I will be a God to you. But there's hope for God's plan. They will be called sons of the living God, Hosea says. Redemption will come. Amos. Remember, we've got a scale. Um, Israel has not held up to God's righteous standard. Jeroboam II's reign was a time of great prosperity in Israel. Amos discusses the issues of wealth, describing in detail the indulgent living of the north. We learn that Israel's material prosperity only indulges their spiritual poverty. The period is characterized by abuse of the poor, injustice, and um, lavish wealth at the expense of the poor. And then lastly, Jonah. God calls Jonah to preach to the Assyrian city of Nineveh. Most of you know this. If you haven't read Jonah recently, it's four glorious chapters, and we really actually um, see the moral of the story in the very last chapter where Jonah is sitting under a tree. He's waiting to see if God is going to blow up Nineveh or not. He's just wandered through this huge city of Nineveh. It takes three days to walk from one side of Nineveh to the other side. And he's preaching repentance all the way through. And then he goes out beyond the city. He takes a seat. And what is providing him shade? There's a little plant, a little plant. And then, so God sends the plant to give him shade. And then God sends a worm to eat the plant. And he's more upset about the lack of his shade than about Nineveh. And God says, do you have any right to be angry right now? Really? I'm, I'm having mercy on this people. 
and all you care about is your comfort. He's in need of compassion. Great story. All right, everybody say number 14. Zechariah reigns for six months, does what is evil in the sight of God. Everybody say 15. Shalom reigns for a month before he's murdered by, everybody say 16. Menahem. Uh, during his reign, the Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser, where are you, Tiglath? Here we go. Here's Menahem. Tiglath-Pileser is going to attack. Um, Tiglath-Pileser is an amazingly energetic and capable king, Assyrian king, who is one of the most successful military commanders in world history. He conquers most of the world of the ancient Near East during this time. And this is where we get a little preview of, yep, thanks, Tiglath, the ABCs of Old Testament empires. You're going to want to know this. A, everything is alphabetical, Gwen. Review your ABCs. <laughs> A is going to be, everybody say, Assyria. Or Assyrians. Great. And then B is Babylonians. And lastly, the kingdom of the Medo-Persians or the Persians. Everybody say Cyrus. So those are your ABCs that you really need to know. Assyria is going to attack the north. Babylonia is going to sack the south. And then Cyrus is going to grant God's people to go back and rebuild the temple of Jerusalem 70 years after they've been in exile. Everybody say 17. Pekahiah reigns for two years. He's killed by, say, 18. Pekah reigns for 20 years, continues in sin. Some important stuff happens during his reign, though. With Tiglath-Pileser putting pressure on Pekah, he tries to strengthen his position by forming an alliance with Rezin, who's the king of Aram, or Syria. They attack Ahaz and the kingdom of Judah, killing thousands of his relatives. So King Ahaz appeals to the Assyrians for help, and the Assyrians destroy a number of northern cities and carry off some of their inhabitants into exile. He's going to be killed by the last king of the north. Everybody, no, wait. Yeah, that's right. Everybody say Hosea. Hosea. Not Hosea. Okay. Reigns for 10 years. He's just a vassal king. He's paying tribute to the Assyrians and Tiglath-Pileser the whole time. And then he rebels against the Assyrians. Shalmaneser is the Assyrian general who starts besieging the city of Samaria for three years. He finally takes the city in, here's our date, 722. That's when Samaria falls by Shalmaneser, yes. Sargon is going to, here's what, here's what Sargon does. And by the way, turn to the end of 2 Kings because this is an important passage to look at. Oh, wait, wait, not, not the end. Turn to uh, Oh, gosh. Sorry. I didn't write this one down. It's in here somewhere. Ah, 17. Go to chapter 17. Here's what the Assyrians do. Here's their method. When they sack a city, not only do they take control, but they cart some of their inhabitants off and disperse them throughout the country and other villages. And then they take inhabitants from other villages and they cart them in. Remember that ancient civilizations, wherever you lived, you had a local god. So with these people that are coming into this land, they're bringing their own religion with them. A mixing of Judaism with other religions, that's called syncretism. You get a syncretized religion. And now you can start understanding why when we get all the way to the Gospel of John chapter 4, Jesus has a conversation with the woman at the well. She's a Samaritan woman. And she's like, all of you guys say we're supposed to worship at Mount Zion in Jerusalem. My tradition tells me we're supposed to worship at Mount Gerizim, which is a local mountain. What do you think? And frankly, the Samaritans were just really wrong about a lot of things. But this is the effect of what Sargon does, the, Ass the Assyrians, in carting people in. Look at 2 Kings chapter 17, uh, verse 7. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the king of Israel had practiced. 
And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars in Asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served gods of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, turn, repent from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent, you, sent to you by my servant, the prophets. But they would not listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. So, same reason that the kingdom splits up. Solomon's idolatry is the same reason that the northern kingdom is sacked. Idolatry is just the, the issue. Okay. Give me the three eyes of the northern prophets. Just a sec, John. Three eyes of the northern prophets. Um, Hosea is infidelity. Amos is injustice. Uh, Jonah is good. Can you give me the names of the ninth century prophets? Elijah and Eli. Who was the worst Israelite king? Ahab. Very good. All right. I think we're pretty good. Hey, you did such a good job. This was a lot of content. Next week, we're going to be starting into the southern kingdom and allow me to pray. Father, you know the idols of our hearts, those things that we um, love to give authority to, but really we're the ones dictating the words that are spoken. We're actually the ones that um, set ourselves up as gods of our own lives. Lord, we pray that you would dismantle that whole system. Just show us it is worthless. Um, just like Mount Carmel, where you played to the strengths of a false god, and that false god could do nothing. In the same way, show our idols to be failures. In your mercy, we pray that before our lives come to destruction. And Lord, thank you for the lessons that come before us and in your mercy, uh, revealing them to us in this class today. In Christ's name, amen.